But I was still fishing that when I was a young kid. But as we grew older, those fish started dying, started going away because of that dam. Now that I what I know now is because of that dam. That has a direct impact on the, my ability to practice my culture. Just this this history of land theft, land seizure, for the development of these hydro projects to facilitate the growth of urban areas downstream, you know, really on the backs of Indigenous peoples. Native people didn't just lay down and die in California, they actively fought back and then also actively went underground with ceremonies and traditions that are passed down towards generations to people like me now. The fishery's gonna keep on falling off the way it is. There's not much hope. And according to our ideology, when the salmon quit coming back, that's the end of the world. And I think it's time for non-Native people to listen to us for a change. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast will center Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, the present, and the future. A final note before we begin, this podcast may contain graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, Episode 3, Weapons of Mass Destruction, Dams, and Colonization. Yeah. Hey, um, my name is Brittany Arona. I am a Hoopa Valley tribal member and a PhD candidate in Native American Studies and Human Rights at UC Davis. I focus mainly on the Klamath River dams up on the border of Oregon um, and California. The dams um, encompass both the California side and then the Oregon side of the um, the Klamath River Basin. So the Klamath River Basin is often described as a uh, river turned upside down. So it starts at the Upper Klamath Lake, a fairly arid region that has now been used for agriculture. So you see a lot of alfalfa farming, uh, ranching, um, you know, that that type of activity that occurs there. And then um, the arid part changes down into the lower Klamath Basin, um, which supports my tribe, the Hoopa Valley, as well as um, related tribes, the Yurok, Kruk, Shasta um, peoples. The Hoopa Valley tribe is along the Trinity River, which is the largest tributary of the Klamath, um, and also faces diversions both from the southern lower port portion, the South Fork of the Trinity, uh, through the Lewiston Dam that was built in 1962 to feed into the Central Valley Project that irrigates the Central Valley um, of California, the agricultural center of the state. But we really, really depend on the river for not only physical sustenance, so we depend on salmon runs that occur. There's eel, lamp, well, lamprey are eel, but uh, trout, 
different fishery species that we maintain relationships with, but we also do our ceremonies on the water. So we just finished our world renewal uh, ceremonies um, that occur every two years in the Hoopa Valley. And some of those dances take place literally on the water. So we depend on this water to maintain our ceremonial and cultural life. Ayuki Hutkich, Mkaka. Hello, how are you? My name's Mkaka. My Kaduk name's Mkaka. And my real name, or my surname, is uh, Ronald Raymond Reed Sr. Um, today I'm coming to you from uh, Kadumin, the center of the world. And this is where I'm the cultural caretaker, the Kaduk cultural caretaker of the ceremonial grounds here. And um, it's an inherent responsibility of mine and my family that has that stretches back to time immemorial. Today, um, I'm representing the second largest tribe in California, uh, the Kaduk tribe. I'm a Kaduk tribal member. I'm a dip net fisherman, a traditional dip net fisherman at Ishifishi Falls. And I'm a ceremonial leader at the Kaduk World Renewal Ceremonies at Inam. This has uh, been something that was passed down to my grandfather back in the early 1900s. So this is something I've been able to, in the last five years, come back and preside as a ceremonial leader in the same place that my ancestors have. So it's a, it's a really uh, strong place to be at this day and age. I was born in 1962, and Iron Gate Dam was completed in maybe 1965. I might have my, my numbers wrong there. But regardless, it was right about the time I was born, when that habitat for the spring salmon was extinguished up above Iron Gate Dam. And some of my earliest memories growing up was fishing down at Ishifishi Falls, was um, harvesting tanook mushrooms, acorns, and deer in the same location. So these are the same locations that have been passed down through time. Medicine is, is made in connection with the salmon runs. The importance of that feature is the, the physical nutrition that salmon provides for the landscape. I think that's well documented. But I think what is not well documented is the physical or the mental or the spiritual connection that salmon have to humans. We survived on that salmon, and that salmon has, has survived on the basis of our management of the resources, throughout time. Right now, those dams on the Klamath River, that dam, Iron Gate Dam, has put the last straw on the camel's back. That straw on the camel's back has crippled the Chinook fishery population. The spring Chinook, the summer run Chinook, and the fall run Chinook the coho salmon, and I think there are other salmon that also were in the system that are no longer there. And it all has to do with the health of the river. Iron Gate Dam cut off that eight miles of the most prolific spawning and rearing habitat in North America, spring-fed system up there. That was extirpated. That was blocked off. But I was still fishing that when I was a young kid. But as we grew older those fish started, die, started going away because of that dam. Now that I, what I know now is because of that dam. 
And so that has a direct impact on the, my ability to practice my culture. The cultural integrity of the Kudu people is devastated because of those, that dam system. There was over a million fish, Chinook salmon, returning to Klamath River Basin to spawn. And now there's less than 5% of that total, and it is still deemed that it has insignificant impact to the cultural integrity of the Kudu people. That's appalling. The work I did with Dr. Kari Norgard at the time, Whitman College. Now she's at the University of Oregon. My name's Kari Norgard. I'm faculty at University of Oregon on sociology and environmental studies. And I'm a non-native researcher who's been working collaboratively with the Kaduk tribe for about the last 15 years on dam removal policy and forest policy, climate change, things like that. For me personally, I'm a sociologist. When I first started um, working with the tribe, I really thought more in terms of race and racism and how, you know, it was just, I had not understood how much the state of California, the U.S. Forest Service, and the other agencies that are there are interfering, actively interfering with the desire of people to take care of themselves and their ability to do so. And, you know, had very much thought more sort of in historical terms in terms of what's going on. But I also hadn't understood so much, as I said, in terms of settler colonialism, that it's that it's a colonial force that's ongoing. I was thinking about indigenous people's experience more just in terms of race and racism. When the um, dams cut off the salmon runs, essentially that was a very dramatic change in people's diets. And so we used a combination of um, looking at health data. Uh, we did a survey of all tribal members living in ancestral territory, and we did a whole series of interviews with people about um, about the foods that they ate, what they could eat, how much they were still able to get. We asked questions in our survey like, when did your family cease, when did salmon cease to become a significant portion of your diet? And we asked that by decade. And then we asked things like, when did diabetes first appear in your family? When did heart disease first appear in your family? And we asked that by decade. And we saw a very direct correlation where as salmon drops, um, there's a chart, there's a graph showing this, as salmon drops, um, uh, diabetes goes up um, and you know, nearly all families now have someone, in, a member of their family with diabetes. Um, but again, um, you know, five decades ago, that was not the case. But I think if you see for other tribes and other communities, and if you understand those dams in the context of an ongoing force of colonialism in people's lives, it, it would be very powerful to have it removed. Um, and of course, you know, we, we know that salmon are in danger. We know that the single most important thing you can do um, for species, a threatened species, is habitat restoration. You know, one thing that has become more and more clear to me as I started working in there is not just racism, but colonialism and how it is ongoing today and how these dams are basically interfering with a sovereign nation's ability to feed themselves and to manage their resources in the way that they see fit. And the presence of those dams is an everyday reminder, not only in a tangible sense of the fish, blocking the fish, 
but it's a symbolic reminder of that there is the state of California, the state of Oregon, uh, the power company um, are interfering with their ability to exist in their in their livelihoods. So it's a it's a, an indication of genocide and ongoing colonialism. It's a reminder. So I would say uh, on a professional level, for me, understanding that racism and colonialism are happening every day now through the actions of state agencies and companies and that people are actively resisting and creatively resisting. We did some denied access to traditional foods, identifying the fact that the federal government has impacted a race of people or a group of people by our project area. The health, the lifestyle of our people has been devastated. And that's what we proved. So at that point, indigenous science had gained some ground on it's not just a physical patriarchal society resource management process. Now, for the first time, we have the spirit of something in there. Now we have acknowledgement that indigenous people are being affected differently than what the perspective is of that, that bottom line management process, profit. So the things I wasn't able to identify was how much money it was impacting the cut of people. How would that impact my people in a monetary basis where the society would understand information that allows the public to see the, the public health implications of the lack of management for the cut of people. What that denied access to traditional food report did was identify the amount of money that it costs people that have diabetes, that have hypertension, have all these different diseases that are associated with a bad diet. So we're trying to figure this thing out, but how can we do these things when our health is so devastated and people are making money off us being sick? It's really uh, mind-staggering to try to articulate the impacts of not being able to provide salmon for your ceremony. Articulate the impact of not being able to hand people fish that you and your family have handed fish to for since time immemorial. And when things like that happen, it, it has a, a devastating impact on the cultural integrity. But also, what is the mental aspect of all this devastation that was caused by forced assimilation? Forced assimilation... I'm sorry, the Klamath River hydroelectric dam process is, is essentially eco-genocide. The ecology of the river was drastically impacted to a point where those million fish didn't have anywhere to go. The most prolific spawning and rearing habitat in North America was cut off, was severed. And now the dams are supposed to be coming out. I, I say supposed to because I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen. Yeah, but if it doesn't, the fishery is going to keep on falling off the way it is. There's not much hope. And according to our ideology, when the salmon quit coming back, that's the end of the world. There has been a transfer of wealth since contact. They took away our salmon. They took away our, our you know, they took away the timber in search of gold. All these different things had a devastating impact on the integrity of the Kaduk people. And then the dams came in and did the final straw on the camel's back that just really crushed the integrity of the Kaduk people.
Hi, I'm Beth Rose Middleton Manning. I am a faculty member in the Department of Native American Studies at UC Davis within Putwin Homelands. I am Afro-Caribbean and Eastern European, uh, born and raised in Sierra Miwok homelands outside of Jackson and Pioneer, California. Well, dams impact the fishery heavily. So I'm thinking of you know, where my husband's from, Mount Maidu, um, the huge earthen fill dam at Oroville completely stops salmon from going upstream past Oroville Dam. Historically, salmon would have been all the way upstream into the mountains, uh, but initially it actually wasn't the Oroville Dam that stopped their progress, their natural cycle. Great Western Power Company was the power company that initially developed the hydropower dams in the Feather River Canyon and just upstream of the canyon. And those later fell under the ownership of PG&E or Pacific Gas and Electric. So all of those dams completely changed the ecosystem, stopped the migration of various species, including salmon, really changed the, the riverine and aquatic life in that, that whole area. As my friend and uh, Maidu elder Lorena Gorbett often says, you know, it was a whole culture, a whole way of life, songs, stories, uh, ways of being, systems of knowledge that were impacted by the dams. I think you could say that uh, across the board. Also thinking of you know the major impact of Shasta Dam on Winnemuwintu people, and kind of the story goes on with all of these dams throughout the Sierras and the foothills and the Coast Range and in the Central Valley, really impacting homelands and waters, changing uh, subsistence patterns, but far beyond subsistence, just culture, identity, and relationship to place. The whole ecosystem is impacted when a dam is put on the system um, and changes the flow regime and what species are in the river. My name is Craig Tucker. I'm a natural resources policy consultant to the Karuk tribe, and I help coordinate the tribe's efforts to remove the lower four dams on the Klamath River. The dams on the Klamath River were constructed between 1918 and 1962, but four dams that we're trying to remove are exclusively a hydropower project, provide no irrigation deliveries, they provide virtually no flood control benefits, they provide no drinking water deliveries, they're hydropower dams. And they're not good at producing hydropower, which is part of the reason they're being removed. And we're a good case study, I think, for how you campaign on environmental issues in the 21st century. And what I mean is this is happening because tribes are full on leading the charge. And so I would just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a non-native person, you know, working in Indian country, but my advice to non-Indians who work on these kinds of issues is all environmental issues are social justice issues. So understand that and what that means, and then find ways to be a, an ally uh, and an accomplice to um, tribes and others who really are bearing the burden of the decisions we're making, whether it's dams or power plants or other kinds of pollution. But that's the recipe for success is, is those kinds of diverse coalitions. So for we know for, to get a new license to operate these dams as a hydropower project, it's simply going to cost the company more money to invest in 
upgrading the structures, uh, building fish ladders as would be required under modern environmental laws. It just exceeds the value of the project. So we've been focused on finding a way to, to remove the dams. We believe that this is going to dramatically advance fisheries restoration in the Klamath. It'll give fish access to hundreds of miles of historic spawning habitat, directly improve water quality on the Klamath River, and alleviate the reservoirs that give rise to massive blooms of toxic blue-green algae every summer that's a health problem for both uh, wildlife and humans. The Klamath River has two big problems. Uh, one's the dams. The other is the operation of the Klamath Irrigation Project. It is far upstream from the dams and in some ways unconnected, but you have to understand both to really get the context of this. So the headwaters of the Klamath is um, it's Haman Desert, but there's this giant basin that drains into a complex of wetlands. And this is where Upper Klamath Lake, Lower Klamath Lake, Klamath Wildlife Fuges. And it used to be just this vast wetlands complex. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, the United States decided to build a giant reclamation project. So they drained wetlands, they turned it into farmland, they plumbed um, the area to be able to move water around. And so today there's about 225,000 acres of farmed land on the Klamath Irrigation Project. There's about 1,400 farm families that farm on the project. These families were granted these lands as part of the Homestead Act. And there were lotteries after World War One and again after World War Two to grant lands to, to the to veterans, but it also displaced Klamath people off of their land. So uh, there were people already living there, the Klamath tribes of Oregon, the Klamath, the Modoc, and, and the Yahuskin Band of Snake River Indians in that area. And so that created a conflict. You know, at the formation of the state, there's this destruction that happens to Native people, this genocide that occurs to Native people at the same time that our lands and waters are being um, dispossessed from us um, and removed from us. Um, so with the construction of water, when, when I'm thinking about water infrastructure, I think of it as a form of um, genocide. Because we see ourselves so closely with the land, we are the land and the land is us. Um, I, I see that as a form of um, genocide against native peoples. And that those environmental policies that continue to the present day are a form of that. There's a tendency with these government actors that control water in the state to look at water policy or environmental policy as being very benign. Like we're trying to do this for everybody and, you know, water for all and everybody needs it and deserves it, which is true. Every, you know, people have a human right to water. Um, but it becomes very different when most of the water is being sent to agricultural purposes that are not necessary in supporting life. When these, the water is being taken and is killing communities. Um, you know, in Yurok country in 2016, 
there was a rash of suicides of young people. Um, and a lot of that was attributed to economic reasons. You know, it's an economically poor place, um, mental health struggles, substance abuse, um, all those things. But people also talked about the death of our rivers as being a contributing thing. So in the river, we talk all, a lot about salmon, but in the lakes up there, there's other fish called, uh, they're suckers, the Lost River and Short-Nosed Sucker, uh, the, the Modoc word being the Tuam and Koptu. Those fish are threatened with extinction. So this is now Warren Buffett's, his empire. We started going to Omaha, Nebraska every year to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. And eventually, after a lot of campaigning, a lot of direct action, lawsuits, we got Pacific Core to the bargaining table and in 2010 forged a series of agreements that together would remove dams and balance water use in a way that uh, folks felt were, was equitable. How much water is in the Klamath River is really, in the summertime anyway, is truly a function of how that irrigation project's operated. In 2001, the irrigators had their water curtailed for the first time in the project's history to protect these fish. It led to huge protests. In 2002, we were still in drought, but the federal agencies reversed course and gave water to the farmers. This led to a massive fish kill in the lower Klamath River where about 70,000 adult salmon died before spawning. So when the dam licensing came up, that was kind of the backdrop. And so we used it as an opportunity to not only talk about removing dams and talking to this big corporation about removing dams, we were also trying to figure out a way to balance water use so that farm communities, fishing communities, tribal communities could all survive. And where we are now is we, we're on track to remove dams in 2023. And we're um, in the last steps of the, the process with FERC. We expect a draft EIS in January and a final decision from FERC next summer. So while environmental policy is often talked about as being kind of benign and, and, you know, using numbers and crunching numbers and all these things, it actually contributes to horrific things that occur in our communities. And I think that's a really hard thing for people to understand that are non-Native. Um, I see myself so closely aligned with the water and river systems that when that fish kill occurred this earlier this year, I was very depressed for a very long time and I'm still upset about it. It's very much a part of us. And so when anything happens to land that's bad, it happens to us. It's a violence against us too. And again, that's a very difficult concept, I think, for non-Native people to understand. Um, even when you're thinking about environmentalism, um, it's like, well, we should protect this because nature is great and we go and look at it. And I often find that 
there's not this idea of us being a part of that nature. And for Native people, we are, we're very much a part, like we carry and maintain relationships with land um, that matter beyond what their usefulness is as a resource. Like they're not resources, they're not natural resources. They're actually living beings that have a life that extends beyond the value of them through monetary purposes. You have been listening to Challenging Colonialism. We will continue this discussion with part two of this episode, continuing to explore dams and dam removal in the context of colonialism and eco-genocide, to repeat the phrase used by Ron Reed. This will include a look at how dams continue to impact indigenous communities throughout the West. In this first half, so far you have heard from Ron Reed, Brittany Arona, Beth Rose Middleton Manning, Kari Norgard, and Craig Tucker. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Martin Rizzo Martinez, a historian, and Daniel Stonebrook, a public school administrator, and is produced with support from the California State Parks Foundation. Please stay tuned for part two, and please rate and review this podcast and share it with your community. The music in this episode was written and recorded by G. Gonzalez.